Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, look, we promised an episode on the Silk Road, so get yourself relaxed because this one's a bit of a corker because Paulie, well, let's face it, mate, you do know your Silk Roads. <laughs> yes, hopefully. All right, okay, so we've skirted around this topic a few times, but we keep getting drawn back in and quite a number of listeners have asked if there's any chance we can go all out and sort of give that blow-by-blow account of not just how the Silk Roads came about, but what they meant to the world over the centuries, if not millennia, and how they grew to the point where they touched almost every corner of the old world, if you like, certainly the length and breadth of the Eurasian landmass, back when the network was at its height. OK, I'm going to jump in here, mate. Paul is hiding his light under a bushel. <laughs> you have travelled all through that area. In fact, on bike through a lot of it, <laughs> you've written a thesis about it and a best-selling book. So, mate, over to you. All right, OK. So, first up, the name, The Silk Road. And that's actually going to be my first howler for today's ep. Because unfortunately, Mikey, in many ways, rather than helping, that name is more of a red herring, a misnomer, which has thrown up a number of problems, which until recently have caused a lot of confusion. You see, the Silk Road, also often called the Great Silk Road or the Great Silk Road to China. Well, first up, and I know this does sound a bit like a duh, yeah, but first up, the Silk Road was not an actual road. Now, I don't just mean by that it wasn't a deliberately constructed, man-made, tarmacadam highway. Of course, it was never going to be that. But it's amazing how many people have visions of a single track ploughing a dusty furrow across Asia, when in reality, it was more of a mesh, a web of lots of small, local, often informal, unmarked routes interconnecting and joining up one to the next until eventually you had an entire network stretching over Asia, north, south, east and west. Now, to be fair, the guy who gave us the name, the Silk Roads, Baron von Richthofen, the great German geographer, he did actually call it the Silkenstrasen, the Silk Roads, plural, mm-hmm. because he did understand that, of course, there was always going to be more than one route that could be taken. And that's the name that I'm going to be using today. But unfortunately, it was a lot easier for most historians rather than geographers just to streamline it and draw it on their maps as one big straight line, a sort of single ribbon rather than a collection of threads. And to be honest, Mikey, it's the, it's the British and the British historians who are most to blame. Yeah, the imperial British Victorian historians in particular. But, but I think that will become clearer and clearer as we go along. Mate, I still remember yeah, my old high school history. I always thought it was a silk road. Okay, so if it wasn't a road, second up, it didn't particularly have that much to do with silk either. In fact, once you get your head around the whole concept, it soon becomes clear it was as much about the exchange of ideas and culture, be that technical knowledge, religion, language, traditions, as much about that as it was about trade in material goods. And even when it was about products and stuff, if you like, you know, silk was still very much only one of a whole range of items alongside food, manufactured goods like 
glassware, jewellery, pottery, precious metals, of course, precious stones, furs, and the often quietly ignored one, slaves. Oh, slaves again. And then the third thing, Mikey, and this is when you start to realise how Europeans on one side and Chinese on the other have often twisted things to suit their narrative. The third thing is the Great Silk Road to China. Well, many, and you could argue most of the routes, didn't actually involve China. Yeah, since this network has often stretched north to the steppes of Russia and Mongolia, or south to the Indian subcontinent, as much as it did to the east and to the west. So China was neither the start point nor the final destination of many of these routes. And as for Europe, despite all the stories about Marco Polo and his like, for most of this period, Europe was Asia's poor relation. And northern Europe, you know, Britain, France, Germany, in Silk Road terms, they're almost irrelevant. Okay, I've got you, Paulie, but but then how come everyone has that image in their heads? You know, you know, the merchants and their camel caravans, you know, car-going bales of luxurious silk to satisfy insatiable European demand. Well, like I said, Mikey, most of the early histories on the region were written by the Chinese, and then later, Richthofen in the 19th and 20th century Silk Road historians, they were European. And this east-west-west-east emphasis, this is the one that most suited their narrative. You know, for the Chinese, they wanted to say how they had been the visionary groundbreakers and prime movers. And of course, the later Europeans, because they liked to trace all their supposed superiority back to the Roman Empire and the ancient Greeks. So they wanted a story linking their past glory to this phenomenal creation. You know, rather than giving credit to the other powers, such as the Persians or the Indians, the Afghanistanis, the powers, they were right in the middle of the process of overrunning and turning into their imperial subjects. Right, so they wanted to depict the Silk Road as a sort of bridge linking east to west to try and emphasise the importance of the Mediterranean world and China rather than the bits and the peoples in between. Exactly. Now look, that's not to say Rome and China weren't involved back when the Silk Roads were emerging as a network. You know, both these powers were desperate to get in on the riches the Silk Roads had to offer. Yeah, why wouldn't they be? But the key is, they were mostly periphery figures on the outer edges. Rather, the architects, the instigators of the whole thing, and once you take the blinkers off, it does become a bit blindingly obvious. The key players, the ones who made it happen, were those in the centre. And it was because they were so successful that the spider web of networks they promoted, it grew and grew until, at its height, it covered not just the whole of Asia, but also sucked in much of the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, sucked in Arabia, even North, Northeast Africa. So the bit in the middle, Mikey, it's not a gap, a void that needs to be bridged, as the Europeans like to tell it. Central Asia, its people and its marketplaces, they're not some middlemen or sideshow. They're the hub, Mikey, the nexus upon whose shoulders this whole edifice is built. Okay, mate. So now we've got a picture of what it wasn't. Can you tell us a bit more about what it was? (laughs) Right. Well, I think if we analyse how it first came into being, hopefully we'll start to work that out. Now, I'm going to use the word exchange a lot today, Mikey, rather than trade, because I think it better reminds us that we're not just talking about produce changing hands, we're also talking about the transfer of ideas, Mm -hmm. knowledge and culture. And if you think about the basic rules of exchange or trade, it always centres around supply and demand, whereby, you know, if you've got something that someone else doesn't have but wants to have, so chances are you're going to be able to capitalise on your position. Exactly. 
Right, so coming out of the Bronze Age, Iron Age, and towns and cities, early civilizations, they're springing up with Asia leading the way. Particularly, you've got what's known as the Fertile Crescent in Western Asia, with all those great rivers like the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Nile. But you've also got important, sophisticated societies in Central Asia, cities like Merv and Balkh, rivers like the mighty Oxus. And then, of course, there's the Indus and the Ganges valleys of Pakistan and northern India. And further east, it's also true to say you've got the many burgeoning cities of China too. So that's your demand. And now it's about sending out feelers in every direction in search of supply. And like I said, the key to this, and perhaps the, the best strategy, is to cross over cultural and physical barriers, go into new climates, new knowledge zones, if you like, and hope that they want a piece of what you've got and vice versa. Are the old, I'll swap you 16 beaver furs for a jar of olives and a bottle of wine. And guess what, Paulie? That's not the first time I've said that. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mikey. But like I said, it's not just about goods. It's also, you know, if you show me how to make those stirrups and those spoke wheels, I'll teach you how to turn an archway into a dome, that kind of thing. Now, those who are most successful at setting up these exchanges, they are often the groups that have a foot in both camps, as it were. For example, the Parthians. Because, you see, they started out as nomads on the steppes of Central Asia back in ancient times, but they ended up ruling over all the great cities of what before them had been the Persian Empire. So they have the perfect set of connections to facilitate exchanges between these two very different worlds with very different supplies and demands. But, yeah, I can feel a but coming on. But before we get to the but, <laughs> um, give me a date, because I'm not really familiar with these Parthians. All right, so we're talking the 1st century BC, 1st century AD, very much the contemporaries of the Roman Empire. You may have heard of the Parthian shot yeah, when yeah. they fight against the Roman armies. But like I said, no matter how good people like the Parthians are, there's still one barrier, one physical border dividing Asia that none of these protagonists can conquer, try as they might, from every direction. And don't worry, folks, I've got, I've got a lot of maps to put on the socials mm -hmm. a little bit later on so you can see what I mean when I'm talking about all these different physical, geographical aspects. But as you can see here, Mikey, with this map, when it comes to turning small regional routes into a giant transcontinental super system, they always seem to hit a brick wall, or in this case, a wall of rock and ice. Ah, the Himalayas. Yes, the Himalayas are part of it, and alongside that mountainous obstacle, you've also got a chain of other ranges. You have the Karakoram in northern Pakistan, the Pamir and the Pamir Knot in Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. And then you've got the Tian Shan, the heavenly mountains, plus the Altai range, which separate Kazakhstan from modern-day Xinjiang province in China and southern Mongolia. Now, all these ranges, as you can see, Mikey, when put together, they effectively form a semicircular ring, a wall, which cuts Asia in two. You know, you've got Western Asia and half of Central Asia on this side, and then you've got the Orient and the Eastern half of Central Asia on the other. And if this wall, you know, 20,000 foot high, like I said, covered for most of the year in snow and ice, it, more than any other physical barrier, more than the deserts of the Gobi or the, the wild steppes of Scythia, this mountain wall prevents almost any chance of exchange or crossover from one side to the other. So while you have these really impressive exchange networks on each side of this ring, you know, north, south, east and west, before the beginning of the common era, they never quite manage to join up and fulfil the vast potential. 
That is, and I think I know where you're going with this one, <laughs> until your hero, Kanishka the Great, turns up with his Kushan Empire, as you explained in a lot more detail in that brilliant uh, Kushans episode uh, we did last year. Yes, that's right, Mikey, the Kushans, because we're now we're at the beginning of the common era, like I said. Although, to be fair, there are also others involved. You know, you've got the nomadic Xiongnu tribes in Mongolia, what's now Siberia, and then the Xiambe tribes that follow them. And yes, you've got the Chinese sending out armies and emissaries, having a sniff around. And of course, you've got the Persians and the Parthians, not to mention the Romans desperately trying to get a piece of the action on the western end with their expansion into Egypt in the Near East. But it is the Kushans with their empire covering Afghanistan, large parts of Central Asia, parts of northern India. They're the ones who score the trifecta and join up all the dots. Yes, so what was it that made them so special? How were they able to break the mould? Well, like the Parthians, Mikey, the Kushans, they were descended from nomadic steppe tribes, the people we call the Uazi. But crucially, these Uazi, they'd grown up on the eastern side of this great chain of mountains, this ring dividing Asia. But following several defeats against their nomadic rivals, the Xiongnu, and also against the Chinese armies, the Uazi Confederation is driven out of their homelands, driven across the Tarim Basin, the Taklamakan Desert, in what's now the far west of China, and up over the mountains through the passes to land in northern Afghanistan. But of course, they don't lose their connections to the east completely. And in fact, some of the smaller Uazi tribes manage to stay on the eastern side and assimilate themselves into the societies of their victors in that eastern part. So once the main body of Uazi tribes regroup and emerge victorious in their new home in Afghanistan and become known as the Kushans, we're now talking the 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries AD, so now this new power can exploit their advantage, forging the missing links in the transcontinental chain and bringing about a fully functioning Silk Rose network encompassing the length and breadth of Asia so that the whole of the landmass continent is finally interconnected. OK, mate, so we're now in the early part of the Common Era. The Silk Roads are up and running, but what happens next? Well, now, I know we said at the beginning there was no such thing as a silk road, but unsurprisingly, in the ancient world, there had been real roads that were built and engineered, often pretty sophisticated feats using stone. And these proved instrumental in facilitating these early exchanges. Well, you're going to have to mention the Romans. Well, yes, Rome is famous for building its roads across its empire, but road building started long before the Republic, Mikey, and the key roads to our story are those such as the great royal road of the ancient Persian Empire, which ran right across the Fertile Crescent and then carried on into Turkey to reach the Mediterranean. You've also got the amazing Khorasan Road, which joined Persia to Central Asia, and the even older Viel Route, which was a well-used passage from Central Asia down through Afghanistan and into the Indus and Ganges valleys of northern India. So what you're saying, Paulie, is all of these roads, they were already built before the Roman Republic. That's right. And on the other side, Mikey, of course, you've got the Great Wall of China being built. Because you've got to remember, its other primary purpose, alongside protecting the Chinese heartlands, its other primary purpose was to provide a convenient and efficient transport link along which horses, carts, soldiers, and to a lesser extent, civilians, could quickly pass. 
But it's also worth noting here, Mikey, it's not just land travel. You know, those mighty rivers we talked about earlier, you know, the Euphrates, the Oxus, they too would just as readily be used for transportation as would the sea. Now, we're mostly talking short journeys here by river barges or small ships hugging the coast, staying in sight of land as much as possible. But to think of the sea lanes as a separate rival network to the land-based silt roads is to miss the point. The two would operate in tandem, and any would-be travellers, be they merchants to missionaries, each would take the quickest, safest, cheapest option on offer. Actually, we've talked about this before, and now that you've mentioned it, I'm starting to get the feeling that, that river barges are amongst the most overlooked bits of technology in human history. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. What you're saying in terms of the Silk Roads, Paulie, is that many of the building blocks were already there, but it took the Kushans to finally join them up. Right. Now, unfortunately, the Kushans didn't leave us much in the way of histories or documents to record their success, but because of all these amazing gold coins we found, many of which now sit in the British Museum. Oh, how unusual. <laughs> because of these, we do know that they were very, very successful in their Silk Rose exploits and that they got very, very rich on the back of it. As did the next guys I want to talk about, another much underappreciated group, the Sogdians. Okay, you've got me there. I have never heard of the Sogdians before, mate. <laughs> okay, well, once again, this is a Central Asian group, and in many ways, they're the ones who pick up the Silk Road's ball and run with it. Now, it seems the Sogdians as a people had actually been around as long as anyone could remember. But rather than trying to build up a political empire controlling a vast territory, rather these Sogdians would much rather position themselves inside or alongside other empires and concentrate on establishing new exchange and trading opportunities rather than political power. So we know they're active in the ancient Persian Empire and under Alexander the Great when he made his charge out across Asia, we see them again. And also, too, there they are, thriving under the Kushans, their next-door neighbours. So the Soldians, they've been around for centuries. Well, that's right. And as the Kushan Empire wanes, so the Sogdians' success waxes, and they start building up colonies stretching out from Central Asia across the Tarim Basin into China and also back west into Persia. And for the next few hundred years, they are the prime architects of not just trade and physical transactions, but also key cultural exchanges such as the spread of Buddhism. And for me, really, Mikey, these Sogdians, they're the glue that hold the whole Silk Road's phenomenon together. And it's because of this that we see them thrive like no other. Now, again, that's not to say they're the only ones. You know, in China, you've got great complexes such as the Jade Gate just outside Dungwang, which was deliberately constructed to provide shelter and aid to merchants and pilgrims alike. And of course, you've got caravanserai springing up all over the western half of Asia. Okay, I'm going to jump in here. A caravanserai, that's sort of like a overnighter for camel caravans. That's right, they're like mini marketplaces, but also board and lodging for these merchants and their camel caravans. And you see them all over Western Asia and, of course, Central Asia too. But as often as not, Mikey, the priorities for powers like the Great Tang Dynasty in China or the Sassanids in Iran, their priorities were military, political, territorial, much more than economic, which is why you see as many garrisons and forts being built as marketplaces. 
And don't forget that on many occasions, Mikey, China actually tries to block and stifle exchange. You know, for example, mm -hmm. keeping the technology behind silk weaving and paper manufacture, keeping it a secret for centuries and exploiting their monopoly at a great cost to all their rivals. In fact, while I've said we shouldn't over-obsess about the role of silk within the network, it does provide a fascinating case study that highlights the very different attitudes of some of the main players along the route. You see, like I've just said, China for centuries tried to keep its sericulture industry and the knowledge behind it a secret. In fact, there's an ancient myth that their hold was only broken when a Chinese princess smuggled out some silkworms as part of a wedding party when she was married off into the Central Asian kingdom of Hotan. But for a long time, China and China only was in control. Now, similarly, the Sassanids, that great Persian empire from the 3rd to the 7th centuries CE, while, yes, they did do much to encourage caravans, they did build caravanserais so that foreign merchants could bring in and sell their wares, but at the same time, these Sassanids also levied enormous taxes and often closed their borders, blocking off foreigners from importing and exporting silk and other goods altogether. And as for the Romans, Mikey, yes, Constantine and the later emperors of Eastern Rome, they should be given credit for focusing their attention eastwards rather than worrying so much about Europe and its descent into the period of stagnation that we like to call the Dark Ages. But at the same time, when in the 7th century, Eastern Rome too learns the secrets of silk manufacture, which actually happens via two monks who smuggle some silkworms to present to the great emperor Justinian, what does Justinian do? <laughs> he calls for the technology to immediately be kept under wraps so that Eastern Rome, Byzantium, can now have its own dominant monopoly and Constantinople can dictate silk prices across the whole Mediterranean world for the next 700 years. <laughs> Whereas the Sogdians, in contrast, they do everything they can to cement the Silk Road network in place, facilitate exchanges east, west, north and south, and guess what? Who is it who gave those two monks the silkworms to smuggle westwards to Justinian? A group of silk merchants in Sogdiana. Okay, mate, it's a big story, but by now we are in the Silk Road's golden age. Is that right? Yes, Mikey. Yeah. Now Asia's clearly on top in terms of the global economy. It's outshining Europe and the rest of the world. And the great Silk Road cities like Bukhara, Samarkand, Baghdad, they are all flourishing as never before. Now, yeah, as with everything, the network ebbs and flows. But as new empires spring up, so the pot, the, the Silk Road's pie, if you like, it gets bigger and bigger with new ideas and exchangeable goods being constantly added to the mix. You know, you've got the great Turkic Khanates of the steppes coming in. You've got the Muslim armies sweeping out of Arabia, the Tang Dynasty pushing out of China. And they're all pushing in one direction. They're all pushing straight towards Central Asia because they've got the Silk Road's in their sights and they all want the same thing to bring the heart of the network under their control you know cities like Samarkand and Bukhara they might not be as large in size as say you know Constantinople or the Chinese capital Xi'an but pound for pound in terms of wealth and prestige and sophistication they're right up there leading the way in fact Muslim scholars of the time they would write that Bukhara's star burns so brightly that rather than heaven 
illuminating light down on it, Bukhara as a city cast its rays to shine upwards to heaven itself. So we're talking around about the 8th, 9th, 10th century? That's right. And that's why when Europe does finally start to get its act back together and drag itself out of the Dark Ages, the first thing it does is launch the Crusades, Mm -hmm. not just to recapture Jerusalem in a wave of religious fervour, but to regain a foothold in Asia and once more gain access to the Silk Road's network. And that's why, you know, like we said in that fourth crusade, Mikey, mm. the Europeans choose to sack Christian Constantinople, their economic rivals in 1204, rather than attack the supposed infidel enemy, yeah, yeah. the Muslim Saracens. And interestingly, Mikey, one of the most significant <laughs> consequences of that sack of Constantinople in 1204, during the Fourth Crusade, is that it actually breaks the Byzantine monopoly over silk production in Europe because various silk farmers and silk manufacturers in Byzantium, they're captured or kidnapped and taken back by the Crusaders, mostly to France, and silk production shifts to new centres like Lyon. But back on the Silk Roads proper, the other big name I suppose we need to mention at this period is Genghis Khan and his Mongols, you know, because they managed to do what no one had done before nor since. They managed to bring the entire Silk Road's network from one end to the other under its complete single-handed control. And of course, that means not just power, but incredible wealth too. You know, it's the largest, most successful contiguous empire the world has ever seen. You know, sure, the British Empire that came later was larger, but that was scattered across the globe. Whereas the Mongol Empire, it stretches unbroken from Mongolia and China in the east through all the great Silk Road cities of Central Asia and on to the shores of the Mediterranean. Now, yes, the Mongols did sack and destroy many that put up resistance, but they're also careful to spare key Silk Road cities like Bukhara and maintain the steady flow of exchange that the Silk Roads had nurtured. And one of the main reasons it seems they did this is because of another important Central Asian people, the Uyghurs. Now, nowadays, of course, they and their lands are claimed as Western China. But in historical terms, the Uyghurs and their homelands in the Tarim Basin, the Taklamakan Desert, this was all part of Central Asia. And remember, too, it's where the Kushan's ancestors, the Uazi, where they had come from. And quite rightly, it's still seen by many today as East Turkestan rather than West China. Now, it was the Uyghurs, Mikey, who provided the Mongols with a written language they could use because they didn't have any written language of their own. They also provided an administrative system under which this enormous empire could successfully operate. And it was the Uyghurs, like the Sogdians before them, that did most during this period to promote and facilitate trade and exchange. And it's now you start to see more of the enormous trade caravans covering longer and longer distances. And it's at this point when you get that beautiful story that sums up the Uyghurs and the Silk Road's success. Because now you have in place, Mikey, a network whereby, as it was proudly proclaimed, a virgin could walk from one end of the continent to the other with a pot of gold upon her head and everything would arrive intact. Okay, we're talking Silk Roads, and I've got two more questions, Paulie. A, how does it end? Yes. And why? 
Mate, what went wrong? Okay, well, I'm afraid just as the emergence period of our story has been blurred and twisted by us Europeans looking back with our rose-tinted glasses, so, unfortunately, has the end of the affair. You see, conventional wisdom, European wisdom, Mikey, it will tell you that the Silk Road's demise started with Vasco da Gama's ship Mm -hmm. rounding the Cape of Good Hope and landing in Calicut, India in 1498. And then this demise was quickly hastened by European ships and their maritime routes, superseding the need for a land-based network. Now that these ocean-faring vessels could complete the journey in one go, with Portuguese ships sailing into Canton Harbour in 1514. But, again, I'm sad to say, European historians, <laughs> mostly from the Victorian period, but to be honest, they were still at it until very, very recently. They weren't just missing the point, Mikey. They were deliberately twisting the narrative to talk up their role at the expense of others. OK, first up, Vasco da Gama's landing in India and the European ships. As you remember we showed in that ep on the moguls, the impact of the Europeans in India in the early days was actually mm. minimal and remains so at least for the next 200 years. Far more significant, not just for India, but for the world as a whole, was the success of the Central Asians and the Mughal dynasty, beginning with Babur, mm-hmm. who arrived by land from the north and brought India closer to the Muslim world of the Middle East and Central Asia and thus tied it more closely into the Silk Road's network. Secondly, as we said before, ships and sea routes, sea lanes, they were never opponents or separate rivals to the Silk Roads. Instead, they'd been regularly used as alternative arms, especially in the Persian Gulf, across the Caspian and the Black Seas, and to join up the coastal ports of Arabia, Western India, and the Horn of Africa. Even the Kushans, Mikey, that most land-based of peoples up in the mountains of Afghanistan, they used barges to... Oh, get- whoa, whoa, whoa! Barges again, mate! Barges! <laughs> That's right. They used barges to get their goods to market down the Oxus and onto the Indus rivers. And they deliberately set out to reach the coast of what's now Pakistan so that their merchants could access its ports and link into the various sea lanes that were acting as an alternative to land-based camel caravans. So the ships were nothing new to the Silk Road network and they were always considered more a helping hand than a threat. And then thirdly, probably most importantly, as we've seen, China was not the actual ultimate Silk Road's prize, final destination. The real action was happening in the middle. So improvements in European naval technology, no matter how great, yes, sure, it would go on to have a major impact on places like the islands of the East Indies, you know, particularly for the Dutch in the 16th and 17th century, and then, of course, the Brits later on. But back in 1498, Mikey, or 1514, the effect these long-distance voyages had on the Silk Road's network was minimal. Of much more consequence were the actions of Central Asians themselves and rulers such as Tamburlaine and his Timurid Empire. Now, once again, he's not just in control of the heartlands of the Silk Roads, but he's actually springing up out of the very centre of Central Asia and positioning himself slap bang in the middle of the Silk Roads hub. You see, relatively quickly, Mikey, the Mongol Empire, probably unsurprisingly, it had proved just to be too big, too many conflicting interests to survive as a whole. And so in the 14th and 15th century, it was divided up amongst Genghis Khan's descendants and eventually began to splinter. Now, at this point, China, having regained its independence and kicked the Mongols out, it turns its back on the whole Silk Road's network. It turns its back almost Mm. on the whole world under the Ming dynasty. But in Central Asia, 
its peoples and empires like the Timurids and the Ghaznavids before them, they make sure the Silk Roads don't just carry on, they thrive and prosper as much as ever, if not more. So, you know, it suited Western Europeans, both in the history books and popular culture, plays, poems, that kind of thing. It suited the Western narrative to portray Tamerlane as a, a real howler, you know, this evil despot, a bloodthirsty tyrant, an unsophisticated brute. Whereas the truth is, his rule from 1370 to 1405, and that of the ensuing Timurid Empire, it's home to some of the greatest mathematicians, scientists, religious scholars, such as the great Ibn Khaldun, mm -hmm. and artists such as the wonderful poet Hafez. And Timur's grandson, Mikey, Ulug Beg, he's one of the greatest Silk Road astronomers and intellectuals of all time. Okay, mate, so why do the Silk Roads come to an end? All right, well, <laughs> some would argue the network never ended, and with projects like President Xi's current Belt and Road Initiative, which was originally called the New Silk Road Initiative, so these people would argue it's still with us today. But <laughs> no, you are right, Mikey. The Silk Road's importance does decrease, and the network slowly loses its luster. And this is not because of those European ships that headed east, but rather the ones that went west. Ah, I think I see where you're going with this. Right, because like we said in that Columbus set, the discovery of the Americas and the New World was pretty much a fluke, and the colonisation of the West Indies was really more of a lucky byproduct of the Europeans' desire to reach the East Indies. But because of all the gold and silver that the Spanish and Portuguese plundered out of Central and South America, and because of all the crops like sugar and tobacco and cotton that slave labour cultivated for the Brits and the French in North America, so slowly the world's economic axis shifted. You know, no longer was Central Asia the centre of commerce and intellectual exchange. Now the richest pickings were to be found in the New World. And slowly but surely, the global economy, its centre of gravity, began to evolve not around the steppes and rivers of Asia, but the high seas of the Mid-Atlantic. Now, look, it still took a lot longer than most people think, so there's no sudden collapse in terms of the Silk Road network, but the shift was irreversible, and by the 17th, 18th centuries, European powers had wrested control of the world economy, and thanks to this economic success, Europe had the money to establish itself as the new centre for learning and intellectual pursuits. And dare I say it again, mate, like we did at the start of the episode, slavery was involved. That's right, Mikey. So just as the Fertile Crescent had dried up and become desert, so the Silk Road caravans ceased to plough their way across an increasingly dusty continent. But for over 1,000 years, Mikey, this network, these Silk Roads, they were by far the most important phenomenon on the planet bar none. You know, more important than the Roman Empire, more significant than the rise of Christianity or Islam, more pivotal even than the Renaissance. And in my opinion, the heroes of this story, they're not the Chinese, they're certainly not Europeans like Marco Polo, they're the men and women in the middle, the Central Asians, who brought all the different elements so successfully together. And Mikey, if you're ever lucky enough to get the chance to visit places like Samarkand, Bukhara, Kashgar, you can still see their descendants today, yeah, welcoming 
outsiders and new possible exchanges in exactly the same spirit. Even in China, Mikey, if you go to the former capital of Xi'an or the Silk Road store ward of Lanzhou, you might be as surprised as I was on my first visit when there, bustling in the heart of the old city centres, were Silk Road merchant districts dating back over a thousand years. And today the Chinese call these the Muslim quarters, precisely because the Central Asians who built them were the Muslim Uyghurs and before that the Muslim Sogdians of yesteryear who we've been talking about and who made the Silk Roads so successful. Incredibly, right in the heart of Han China, there they are with their mosques, their market stalls, and you'll like this bit, mm. Mikey, their shashlik kebabs roasting over their charcoal braziers. Yay. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 